KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. Food insecurity is a sad truth for millions of people across the world, including right here in Philadelphia. The United Nations warned this week that the coronavirus pandemic will cause famine of biblical proportions. So I reached out to Mariana Chilton, professor of health management and policy at Drexel University. She is also the director of the Center for Hunger-Free Communities. She broke down why so many people are hungry, how the pandemic is making the problem worse, and what needs to be done to stop it. I'm very glad that the United Nations has made an announcement like that because I think many of us around the globe are deeply concerned about what uh, this pandemic is an indicator for. What it's, the, the reason that the United Nations came out with that statement is that all over the world, billions of peoples of lives have really been upended in a way where they, the, you know, the vast majority of people who are poor across the globe are living and working hand to mouth. And that is they make extremely low wages um, or they're a part of a gig economy. They have to rely on selling their own vegetables or selling things in the street in order to make enough money to feed themselves and feed their families. And so the reason that there would be massive starvation and hunger across the globe because of the, quote, shutdown of the economy It's because it's going to be a shutdown of the particular economy that keeps people poor. Um, So in many ways, it's an indication of how poor people have been before the pandemic and how many people are living on the edge, uh, barely able to afford enough food, not to mention have access to clean drinking water and and to basic sanitation. So these are massive concerns because there are billions of people without access to even running water to wash their hands. So, you know, not only will there be increases in in hunger because people don't have enough money for food and can't make a living, but there will be um, an exacerbation of major problems with malnutrition that's poor sanitation and, you know, being exposed to the COVID virus, those kinds of things. Right. And just looking at these numbers that the United Nations was talking about and thinking about you know, hunger on a macro scale in 2020, Part of me always thinks that, you know, we have incredible innovation, problem solving and technology at this point in history, but it's it's not even a small number. Can you just talk about the number of people that are facing this problem? Yeah, well, so the issue is not that um, the world doesn't have enough food and enough water to support our populations. The major problem with why we see so much suffering and why we're going to see so much suffering ahead is the way that food and water are actually distributed and how who has access, who has control over what. So the researchers who've been studying massive episodes of starvation and hunger basically show that the reason that there is hunger is that those who are wealthy are hoarding the food, the distribution hoarding the money and not making it available to those who need it and who are entitled to it. So, like, for instance, during massive uh, starvation and hunger in India in the 50s, 
there were bumper crops. There was plenty of food. The problem was that the areas that were poverty-stricken didn't have ways of getting access to the di- to different distribution, uh, transportation networks, and those kinds of things. And that's because the wealthy were hoarding the resources that we currently have. So this is a major wake-up call for us in terms of the pandemic. Is um, we have plenty of technology to help solve the issue. The, but the, the deeper problem is how much we care for each other and how much we put in place to make sure that everyone can meet their basic needs. And that's basic need for food, for water, and for shelter. And the, when we have billions of people, and I'm saying it's going to be, it's billions. In India alone, the problem is massive. And those are people who don't have access to any kind of a livelihood. What are we doing as a people to take care of each other that's deeply concerning. So yes, we have plenty of technology and it's not technological, it's not really technological solutions. It's more of a solution about what does it mean for our humanity? How much are we taking care of each other, our communities? And are, are we able to be, even be resilient in a major crisis like the, like the pandemic that we're facing right now? One thing if I could say is that the pandemic is um, it's just the tip of an iceberg of many other types of crises and catastrophes to come. And that is um, with the climate crisis that we're experiencing right now, a widespread extinction of uh, multiple species that are so essential to our, to our food systems all over the world. Uh, w- this is a, a wake-up call to all of us to start to think more deeply about what kind of planet we want to live on and whether we're interested to save the human species and many other species along with us. So if we can't respond well to the COVID crisis and make sure that people can meet their basic needs, then there are, there are massive problems ahead. So this is just, it's an opportunity for us to get organized to ensure that the billions of people who are at risk for lack of access to safe and clean water and lack of access to enough food for an active and healthy life. If we can't figure out how to do that now, then the problems are going to be on an even greater scale in the future. Well, what what type of things were being done before coronavirus to help people facing hunger and food insecurity? And uh, have relief efforts changed during this pandemic? The global community um, has been trying to use the Sustainable Development Goals as an operating framework to help people. And the, the first two Sustainable Development Goals are zero hunger and zero poverty. It's not like people didn't know that poverty was our main problem across the globe for, for the human species. And so there have been massive efforts um, across the globe to ensure that people have access to arable land, that to ensure the rights of women and girls to have ways to be able to collect water and to farm and to be able to get food for themselves. Um, In the more agrarian communities, there's been a lot of efforts um, across the globe to have good nutrition programs, especially for women and children. Um, In India, there are massive programs there that help um, malnourished families. In the United States, we have our own programs. We have the WIC program, and that's the Women, Infants, and Children program that helps pregnant and lactating moms and very young children. Um, And so those those are very good efforts. But the problem is that those efforts to feed people have not helped to reduce poverty. So in the United States, for instance, if I could just bring it home, 
when in the United States, we have 50% of the newborns in America are participating in WIC. And on the one hand, that's great spread. That's the public health community is very proud of that type of reach in that those who need the program can get access to it. And we know that it prevents um, premature birth, it prevents underweight, it promotes child development, and it even reduces maternal depression. That's extremely important. But what it also tells you is that 50% of the newborns in America are born into poverty. And we're doing nothing to really stem the tide of poverty and to deal with the underlying issues of poverty, which is very low wages, lack of value of, of, of workers, not taking care of our disabled communities or people who need extra supports. The fact that we allow that kind of poverty to continue in a country like the United States is shameful. And, and that's even if, even as the global community has said that we need to eradicate poverty across the globe. So I think it's, um, it's an opportunity for us to think about how do we distribute resources and how do we make sure that people who are the poorest and most vulnerable in the world have access to food and water and shelter, regardless of whether they are working, regardless of their immigration status, regardless of who they are, the fact that they're a human being, they have a right to food, a right to water, a right to a minimum standard of living. And you started to already talk about America, but a lot of your research is in Philadelphia. Uh, can you talk about the factors yes. that you've already studied and how coronavirus may or already is contributing to that? Yes. Well, for the past 20 years, I've been um, tracking the health and well-being of families in Philadelphia. And one of the major indicators of health and well-being is rates of food insecurity. Um, so actually, and I got more serious about it in uh, 2000, in January of 2005. So 16, 17 years ago, we've been um, measuring and tracking food insecurity among uh, Philadelphia's most vulnerable families all around uh, North Philadelphia. And we know that it's an indication of how families are doing across the city. Um, and we found that in, among the families that we interviewed, 60% of the families with young children under the age of four had some kind of hardship in hardship in paying for food in paying for utilities and paying for housing. And again, those are the things I said before are basic fundamental human needs and therefore fundamental human rights. And the fact that 60% of the families with little kids are struggling economically is that should have been make that should have been making our city take very drastic um, attempts and making very drastic efforts to help those who are poor. And the response has been overall pretty slow and painstaking and lots of committees and discussions and not a lot of action. What the COVID uh, crisis and what the pandemic has brought to us is an opportunity to respond very quickly and very drastically um, without a second thought. And so in many ways, the city has done a phenomenal job in ensuring that um, children who were in school who have access to free breakfast and lunch, who, when school is closed, they, ma they made sure that the schools were able to meet the needs of those families who need that food, who rely on that food in schools. All of a sudden, the city decided to put up 40 distribution sites for anyone and everyone with a box of free food where a person didn't have to show up with an ID or any proof of income. That, to me, is what the city should have been doing 10 to 15 years ago as soon as they knew that the rates of hunger were so high. 
So in many ways, the pandemic has brought to Philadelphia a sense of reason and a sense of action, taking it very seriously that people's livelihoods are very, um, are very, are very much at risk. So it's exciting that the city has done such a great job with that, um, but this is not sustainable. And this is why we need much more, uh, much deeper approaches, more radical approaches, such as universal basic income um, and other kinds of programs, universal health insurance, universal child care. And the city has been going in that direction, but this is an opportunity to make a quantum leap forward. What, what kind of changes would you like to see that um, can be most effective to fight hunger, especially right now um, when it seems very critical? Just what do you think needs to be done? Well, I think what's being done is a good start. So making sure that there are um, open and available sites for people to get free food in ways that are safe uh, without any questions asked. And this makes sure that um, immigrant families have opportunities to get food if they don't have access to the federal nutrition programs. I think on the federal level, um, there have been some positive movements to improve the SNAP program, to increase the amount of SNAP dollars that some families get. Uh, right now on the Hill, there is a discussion of increasing SNAP benefits or uh, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is the number one federal program to fight hunger in the United States. There is a, a push to increase um, SNAP benefits by 15% across the board for everyone because we know that SNAP benefits are not enough. So those are positive, but those are um, unfortunately a drop in the bucket for what really needs to happen. We need a radical rethinking of how we address poverty in this country. The first three things to do are to ensure universal health care, universal basic income, where families can get enough money to feed their families and to pay for housing and to pay for utilities, regardless of whether they are working or not, regardless of their disability status or not. And what that can do is equalize the playing field, reduce stigma, reduce the burden of being able to get these kinds of programs. Um, and the third universal program that needs to be put into place is universal child care. Philadelphia has done a great job in getting more free child care programs available, um, but there's much more that can be done. The second, th there are two more things that I, that I really would like uh, the city of Philadelphia to consider and that we also should consider as a nation. As people go to the grocery store right now and see empty shelves uh, and are surprised, they might be thinking, oh, the American food supply doesn't have enough food. Well, that can't be further from the truth. There is so much food in our country. There is so much food on the planet available right now. Um, but the way it's distributed and the way people are transporting the food and who has access to food is very problematic. So our food system, the way it's currently operating, is starting to break down. You'll notice that you'll see uh, articles about how there's supposedly going to be a, quote, shortage of meat. <laughs> My feeling is that actually maybe we didn't need as much meat in the first place when we know that... Um, cows and pigs are contributing to methane gas that's breaking down the ozone. So in some ways, maybe it's a good opportunity to rely on less meat overall. And it's a way for us to think about maybe not relying on a globalized food chain, a globalized food system. It's an opportunity for us to think locally. How can we ensure that the local farmers are, have access to markets in our cities? How can we make sure that the fishing industry 
has access to local markets. And that's not just relying on the restaurant industry, but relying, making sure that grocery stores and that the big food, um, the, the people who are uh, needing to feed a lot of people, such as the um, hospitals and the universities, are relying on locally grown food. What that does is it allows people to think about a regional food system in ways where we have a sense of food sovereignty, a sense of connection with each other, a sense of connection and care for our food workers all uh, throughout the food chain, from the grocery store um, and, and on back to the farmer or the producer or the fisher person. What that does is it increases our connection with our local community. And if you can increase and improve the connections with our local community and our local food system, we have greater sense of care for each other. And you might remember I started out this whole conversation is why do we have global poverty and why do we have so much hunger is because of the way that we actually don't care for each other. So let's start looking around a local community and find ways that we can plug into each other and help each other. The, the stronger our communities and the stronger our local food systems are, the more resilient we will be in the face of further adversities or for other crises that are to come. The second major transformation that we need is when we know that black and brown people and indigenous people are the most at risk for dying of COVID, it's an indication that all diseases across the world follow the same fractured social relationships as discrimination. Knowing that black and brown people and indigenous people have been discriminated against for generations should indicate to us that there is a major problem with the distribution of wealth in this country. And this is why we really need reparations. And that is direct payments to people who are descendants of chattel slavery in this country. And I would also add to that those who have been discriminated against uh, through federal programs such as redlining and at lack of um, and mortgage discrimination and in Philadelphia, you can see that there is a major difference in the life expectancy of those who live in neighborhoods that have been historically discriminated against or had been historically redlined. When a, a neighborhood has been redlined, it means that the quality of their schools is worse because they have le less of a tax base to pay for good quality schools. It also means that their housing stock is not as good and people are more susceptible to asthma and other health problems. It also means lack of access to good paying jobs. And it creates an enormous amount of stress and toxic stress. When we looked at food insecurity, and we've been, I've been following food insecurity for two decades now in Philadelphia, we see that food insecurity follows the same path as redlining. And so Philadelphia, if Philadelphia really wants to make a difference in food insecurity and poverty in this city, and also protect people from COVID and from whatever crises, whatever crisis is ahead, they have to start taking seriously the possibility of reparations who've, who've suffered from discrimination. That is, the on, that is really the only way that um, we can start to um, create more equity in our health care, in our health, and in um, access to basic needs. It's not going to just take universal health care or universal basic income because that still keeps the, those inequities in place. We need more money to get into uh, the black communities and into communities of color. Thank you so much for your time today and talking about this important topic. Thank you, Charlotte. Good luck.
That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area or how it's affecting you, subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.